This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source, like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation Levels of talk okay, radio, here, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. How are you? Happy Saturday. Thank you for being here. Really excited for today's show. Uh, I want to talk a little later, I think we'll do this in the second hour, about how people make decisions, how people create opinions. This is so essential to understand. If it clicks, and I hope I do a good enough job explaining it, then from this point forward, it's like it's like you're in the Matrix. You know that scene in the Matrix when, the, when he gets shot and the bullet's coming at him and he like in slow motion leans back. Like You can just wade through the nonsense. If this clicks, you can just sift through it. You're in slow motion, seeing everything come at you. And you can just like, just like, like wage your way through it. It's awesome. Um, but, uh, but it, you got to get this point. Um, have you ever seen Lord of the Rings? The second one, uh, Gandalf is going to the King and he's trying to get the curse out of him. And he's got his buddies around him. Gandalf does. And uh, he goes in the castle or whatever, and he sees uh, Theoden right there in the chair, all all cursed. And uh, uh, Gandalf is like walking towards him, and then all these people start attacking him, and he doesn't even lose focus. He's just like lasering right on the guy who's cursed, and all the bad guys are coming at him, and he's just not even just boom, 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 like punching him, kicking him, and all these guys around him are fighting, and he doesn't lose focus ever on uh, why he's there. And, and once this clicks, once you know how people form opinions, you just don't get distracted by nonsense anymore. So we'll do that a, uh, a little later. But first, I got to start here because I couldn't be happier. I found something that I've been looking for for 13 years. Last weekend was the National Prayer Breakfast. And it got may got attention because you remember Donald Trump said we should pray for Arnold Schwarzenegger's ratings on The Apprentice, and people mocked um, Trump for this. And then Schwarzenegger came back, and they got a little spat going on or whatever. So I was like, oh, well, that's weird. That like the whole thing's weird. So I'm like, oh, I'll go back and find the context to Trump just coming out of nowhere saying, uh, yeah, let's pray for Donald Trump or for uh, Schwarzenegger and his ratings. So here's what happened, real quick. Mark Burnett uh, introduced Donald Trump to the lectern, 
Mark Burnett is the president of MGM Television. He's the guy behind The Voice and Survivor and Shark Tank and The Apprentice. And he's super Christian, like unashamedly Christian. He and his wife, Roma Downey, produced the Bible miniseries on NBC like a year ago. Big Trump guy. So he emceed the prayer breakfast. And before Trump took the stage, Mark Burnett uh, introduced him as the host of The Apprentice, which they worked on together. So that was that was a setup, right? That was that was the introduction. And then Trump goes to the podium and talks about The Apprentice and made the joke about Schwarzenegger. So that was the background of that. And obviously no one provides that context, but that's not what's important. So I'm, I'm scrolling through the prayer breakfast. I'm like, oh, I wonder what else is going on. And I got to a point where Mark Burnett walks to the lectern and says, man, that, that was an incredible address from Rear Admiral, Barry, uh, Rear, Rear Admiral Barry Black. Well, everyone, that was one of the greatest things I've ever heard in my life. And I went, yes, that's him. I found him. I've been looking for that guy forever. Let me back it up. My brother graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 2003. And I was uh, 17 at the time. I went to his graduation. And I, I didn't want to be there, right? Uh, <laughs> all I remember, I remember two things. The commencement speaker was Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And for some reason, I remember his speech making me angry. And I don't know why. I don't know if there's anything he said or it was a thousand degrees and it was the graduation just took forever. I, so I just remember not enjoying that part. And the only other thing I remember is a speech I heard like the day before, two days before the main graduation. And it was spectacular. I remember the venue. I remember the stage. I remember everything about it except for his name. And I don't remember anything he said. <laughs> so like what a weird experience. Cause I remember all the details or no, I don't even know. I guess I understand. I, I remember all the surrounding things. I remember how it made me feel. I remember like I said, the stage and the venue and the color and all that. And I remember talking about it after, but I don't remember anything about it. I just remember start to finish. It was a master's class in oratory. And I remember thinking this must've been what it was like with like the ancient Greek orators getting up and just blowing people away. Like when, when giving speeches was the main form of entertainment, like this guy is from a different era and my parents were stunned and the whole place was just so incredibly impressed. And about once a year for the last 13 years, once or twice a year, I think of that speech and I can't for the life of me find out who it was or what it was. And I'm pretty good at Google, but I could never find it. I found him. It was Rear Admiral Barry Black. So I found the speech and, and it was, it's the greatest speech I've ever read. Just like I remembered it being, but now I actually know what it's about. Um, this is the opening story and I'll just, I'll just share this for now. And I'm going to share a lot more as, as the weeks go on. But uh, this is what he said. He said, uh, graduates, I want to talk about, oh, he gave the baccalaureate address. That's what it was. It was the baccalaureate address. He says, I want to talk about living a life that matters. Two construction workers were taking a lunch break. One opened his lunch bag and explained, exclaimed, oh, not bologna sandwiches again. This is the third time this week I've had bologna sandwiches. I hate bologna sandwiches. And his coworker says, well, Bob, why don't you ask your wife to fix you something different? Bob responded, oh, I'm not married. 
I made these sandwiches myself. Members of the class of 2003, the truth of the matter is most of the baloney we find in our lives, we put there ourselves. And one of the challenges of life is to ensure that we have a sufficiently ethical outlook so that we do not sabotage our destiny. I love that story. What if, and I've never thought about it like this before, but what if the difference between those who succeed and those who fail or who never achieve or never reach their potential, what if the difference is the baloney that we put in our lives that we ourselves put there? What if that's it? What if that's the big difference maker? What a game changer. So my New Year's resolution with my wife is to, uh, to read. I almost never read. College ruined reading for me. So as a history major, we had to read a book a week, and it was just like, I was like plowing through books, and it just became a chore. So I haven't read like a book in forever. So smart people read. So my wife and I, every night we're home, 20, 30 minutes, we sit down, we read. And sometimes I don't want to read, and she, she's like, come on, we got to do it. And sometimes she doesn't. I'm like, come on, we got to do it. And it's been awesome. So I'm reading two biographies right now and I'm listening to one on tape and the stories are exactly the same. The details are different. One set in the 1850s, one in the 1920s, one in the 1930s, but the stories are exactly the same. It's poverty that no one today can comprehend. Life situations that I've never heard of, like, like almost no one in America can fathom, just grinding disappointment after disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And each of the main characters is the ultimate underdog. And there's, this is what's crazy about it. They're such an underdog that no one even pays attention to them. They're not even a joke. Like it's one thing if they were a joke, because if they were a joke, then they'd be on people's radars. They're not even noticed. And then they succeed beyond everyone's expectations and they become national heroes. I want to tell you a little bit about their bios next, but, but the point is these people all had hurdle after hurdle. You know, you think of people not succeeding and I don't know what vision you have in your brain, but it's, you know, they came from difficult situations and they had you know hurdles to overcome and they couldn't do it because they were too high. Maybe, but I don't know. I'm, I'm reading a lot of stories about people who had some pretty remarkable hurdles that they climbed. What if the bigger factor is the baloney? Because these three people didn't put extra baloney in their way. They just kept going. So, of course, the question is, what's the baloney in your life that you put there? Life's tough enough, right? Do we need to go put an extra baloney in the way? 1-888-900-3393. All right, I'll share one story. Uh about one of these guys next. And then I want to talk, uh, the one political thing I wanted to do today is talk about the Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz uh, debate the other day. There's some important things to talk about that. So we'll do that in this hour as well. one 3393 and Mike Slater show on, um, on Facebook. Join us there on the blaze radio network. Spread the word. Mike Slater on the blaze radio network.
Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source, like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life, and that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. This is Mike Slater. Slater presenters. So the biographies I'm reading, uh, first is Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, I think I've mentioned that a few times before. And the second that I started is Charles Lindbergh, first person to fly across the Atlantic. He was the most famous person in the last century. The San Diego airport's named after him. Um, and I don't know anything about him. I know about his son or whatever, but I, how could I not know anything about the most famous person of the last hundred years? Isn't that wild? So real quick about Charles Lindbergh. No one... No one knew him. He was so unknown, no one would make him an airplane. That's how much of a nobody he was. The only company that would make him a plane was a company called Ryan Aeronautical uh, here in San Diego. But he was in St. Louis. So he had to come all the way across the country to find someone who would make him a plane. So similar to the Wright brothers. No one heard of the Wright brothers when humans were trying to fly. All the attention was put on Samuel Pierpont, uh, uh, Pierpont Langley. He was a Harvard professor. He had all the funding. He had all the means. He had all the attention. The New York Times put a reporter just on covering Professor Langley because the, everyone knew that he was going to be the first person to fly, but he was beat by two brothers who owned a bicycle shop in South Carolina. What? And then the book I'm listening on tape is called The Boys on the Boat. Uh, it's the men who uh, won the gold medal in the Nazis' 1936 Olympics in crew. And this is right out of the depression, right? And they're all, so crew is a very Northeastern elite sport, sons of presidents and senators and bankers. But this was about the university of Washington and they're all sons of lumberjacks and fishermen and miners and farmers who have never been to a regatta in their life before they joined the crew team. And they went on to be the best in the world. So all these men, Grant, uh, Lindbergh and this crew team, they all overcame incredible, like obstacles, like, the, the, the one of the guys on the crew team, his father, mother, and, and two brothers younger than him left him when he was 15. They just all left him. They left him alone for, for years. Just you're on your own now. He's 15. What the heck? Like ridiculous obstacles. And no one ever expected them to achieve greatness, let alone the, the, the pinnacle of their fields. But to me, that's the American character. And also these, these men didn't put any extra baloney in their life. Let me share a story about that. So Charles Lindbergh, again, first person to fly across the Atlantic, uh, New York to Paris. First, I had no idea how many people were trying to do this at the time. 
There was a New York hotel owner. His name was Raymond Ortigue. He offered uh, $25,000 to the first person to do it. It's about 400000 in today's dollars. So Lindbergh wasn't the only one trying because people wanted that money. The first attempt in 1926, there was a French flyer. And he was backed by a Russian plane designer. And the guy's name's uh, Funk, the French guy. He got three people together. Three people. So the four people on the plane, it never took off the ground. Exploded at the end of the runway. Two of the four people died. I'll get back to him in a second. The next year, three Americans teamed up on a plane called America. There was a team of two Americans on a plane called Columbia, and then a third team of two Americans on a plane called the American Legion. And then there was a French team of two guys trying to fly from Paris to New York. So let me run through those. First, on the the team, the America, the plane crashed during a test flight, and the pilot was too injured to ever fly again. So that was over. In Columbia, the two pilots kept arguing, and one of the guys quit, and then they sued each other, and then the backers sued him because they needed to get some rich people to pay for all this stuff. So everyone's suing everyone, just total meltdown. The American Legion, just before they were trying to, going to finally attempt, their plane crashed and both their pilots were killed. The French guys, they were last seen flying over Ireland. So they left from Paris, flew over Ireland. They were never heard from again. And still today, no trace ever found of their plane. So amidst all of this, Lindbergh, this totally unknown guy, gave it an attempt. And no one even no one even heard of him. Now, here's why he was completely different. A couple of reasons. First, he was the only person to try it alone. Every every other group was a it was a team. So this avoided any hassles like the Columbia team had, right? Like bickering and all this stuff. He was also the only person to try it in a single engine plane. Every other team had two or three engines in their plane, a much bigger plane. He was also the only person willing to take off when the weather wasn't perfect. He said, what kind of man would live where there's no danger? I don't believe in taking foolish chances, but nothing can be accomplished by not taking a chance at all. But here's the life lesson, and here's where it applies to the the baloney that we put in our lives. That first team to try in 1926 I was telling you about, the, the pilot was the top pilot in the world, right? The number one pilot in France, the top ace during World War I, and, and the most acclaimed pilot above anyone else. So he assembled his team. There was a co-pilot, a navigator, and a radio operator. His plane had three engines, big plane. You want to know what else was in the plane? A bed, red leather upholstery. So the nice, the nicest leather seats. There were long wave and short wave radio sets, so all the best technology. Flotation bags in case of an emergency. They had a, uh, a hot celebration dinner that they were going to eat upon their arrival in Paris. And then they had a, uh, a, a batch of warm croissants that they, that they took off with that they could eat in the beginning of their journey and then all the food and everything else. That plane never left the ground. That's the one that crashed at the end of the runway and two of the four died. Lindbergh's plane, by comparison, I I was going to say it was stripped of everything, but it wasn't even stripped of everything. It was built around him with the absolute bare necessities. It had, had the most basic equipment possible. He sat on a wicker chair. Not a red leather upholstered chair, a wicker chair because it was lighter. He had water and a life raft, no parachute. He ripped the margins off of his maps to save weight. That's, I mean, that's like, like, 
Like he had his maps. He ripped the, like the sides off to save what a couple grams. And he only brought five sandwiches for soup for food. And people were like, don't you need more than that? And he said, well, I'm either going to die. So I won't need more or I'll eat when I get there. He carried nothing else with him on his plane. And he did that because he wanted to be as light as possible and to save room for more fuel. And the way they designed the plane around him, he needed to look out uh, through a telescope, right? So they, they built the plane just for this specific task. He actually ended up eating only one of the sandwiches. But isn't that wild? Like, I love that story. It, it doesn't take, hmm, I was going to say it doesn't take much to be successful. But that's not it. Um, let, me, let, me, let me go flip it around. Maybe the only way to be successful is to have as little as necessary. Maybe that's the only way. To focus on what's necessary and only what's necessary. No extras, no pomp and circumstance, no champagne uh, for, for your arrival. Not the nicest leather seats, but, a, but an old wicker chair. He didn't bring a change of clothes for when he got to Paris. The ambassador, the American ambassador to, to France had to get a local tailor to make him clothes and he let Lindbergh wear his pajamas to sleep in when he, went, when he finally got to go to sleep. Man, strip your life down is what I'm getting at. We are too weighed down by stuff, stuff we think we need. Take a Google of, uh, just Google Spirit of St. Louis. That was the name of his plane. And you can see the inside of Lindbergh's plane. It's a total joke. A total joke. I was at my buddy's house the other day. His uh, five-year-old has a, a motorized Hot Wheels car, you know, that is way more technology than Charles Lindbergh's plane. If you got too much stuff in your life, you're never going to take off. So my goal is to be more like Charles Lindbergh. Get rid of that excess weight. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later. It's later uh, I got some more stories I want to share a little later, but let's do a little politics. The Bernie Sanders, Ted Cruz debate. Uh, was it Tuesday, Wednesday? I thought it was, um, well, let me tell you, I, I hope they do more of these. I hope they do a lot more. I think it's a good thing. I, I love, I, they were talking about healthcare. I, I love Bernie's opening. Bernie's opening is basically without Obamacare, everyone be dead. You'd all be dead. We're, we're all dead. We'd all have cancer, diabetes, we're all dead. That's And then his solution is, oh, I got to be more like Denmark. Denmark. Denmark's the best. Everyone loves Denmark. And that's a great argument because for whatever reason, people have this utopian vision of Denmark. Has anyone been to Denmark? No, no one's been to Denmark, but we just have this made up vision, this made up dream about this utopian land called Denmark. So, uh, Bernie can, can say, oh, we got people like Denmark. And everyone's like, yeah, we do. A couple things that I want to break down specifically. Um, first, to, to make the argument, as Bernie did, and I'm sure you've heard before, that we are the only industrialized country that doesn't guarantee health care as a right. 
That's not an argument. That's that's not an argument. I'm not even going to debate whether or not it's true. I'm just telling you it's not even an argument. Don't let anyone get away with that. The person who says that, obviously, and this is what we're going to talk about more a little later about how people form opinions, but the person who is saying making that argument obviously thinks that healthcare should be a right. So to them, that argument is a, a deal clincher, right? It's like, I want this and we're the only country that doesn't. Therefore, we need it, right? But to make that leap, you got to skip over why is it good? So when Bernie or someone says that we're the only country without universal health care, the proper response is so or even good. Let, let me let me prove this another way, because when when we talk health care, people think that health care is different than any other commodity when it shouldn't be. We get very emotional about it and we, we kind of like lose our principles. But um, let me make another argument. You know, we are the only not making this up. This isn't true, but I'm making it up. We are the only industrialized country in the world without poisonous snakes. Okay, when I say that, what do you say? You say, good. (laughs) Okay, good. I'm glad. We don't want poisonous snakes. But if I say, well, hold on, we're the only industrialized country that doesn't have it. Does that mean we should want them? So see, it's, it's, that's not an argument. Just saying that we're the only industrialized country that doesn't have this thing doesn't mean that that thing is good. So when someone says we're the only country without industrialized healthcare or the only industrialized country without universal healthcare, that is not an argument that universal healthcare is good. I hope that makes sense. Don't let anyone get away with that one. Um, oh gosh, we got so much to do. <laughs> Another argument. Ooh, this one, I'm going down a long road here. Um, all right, I'll throw it out. I'll do it quick. I'll do it quick. Another argument Bernie makes is uh, we spend more in America than any other country on healthcare. We spend more in America than anyone else in America than anyone else in the world on healthcare. Now, when you hear that, what's the first thing you think? Healthcare is really expensive here. Healthcare is more expensive here than anywhere else in the world. That's 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 what they're trying to get you to think. When he says we spend more on healthcare in America than anywhere else in the world, they want you to knee jerk think. It's more expensive here than anywhere else in the world. But that's not necessarily true. Now, it is expensive, don't get me wrong, but that could also mean, and it is also true, that we buy more healthcare than anyone else in the rest of the world. Again, let me change the word. Let me change the noun away from healthcare because people get emotional about it. Uh, Did you know that in America, we buy more lettuce than any other country in the world? What's your first thought? Your first thought is, oh gosh, we buy a lot of lettuce. I didn't know. Did you know we buy so much lettuce? I didn't know we buy more lettuce than anyone else in the world. Okay, now when I say, did you know we buy more healthcare than anyone else in the world? Why isn't your first thought the same? Why isn't your first thought, wow, we buy more healthcare than anyone else? No, that's not your first thought. Everyone's first thought is, oh, it's so expensive. Why? Does that make sense? It is very expensive, don't get me wrong, but again, to say we we buy more than anyone else, or excuse me, it's, uh, we spend more money on healthcare than anyone else in the world, that is an, uh, a disingenuous argument because they want you to believe something that's not necessarily true. Okay, I could keep going down that road, but that's the short version. I want to play this moment here. 
Uh, this is an important moment. We'll go 1351. Look, Ted, and, and you're right. This is a good discussion. All right. And here is the issue. Ted, let me ask you a question. Sure. Is every American entitled, and I underlined that word, to health care as a right of being an American? Yes I, or no? You know, I'm glad you asked that. You know, right is a word you use a lot. Let's yep. talk about what rights are. Rights mean you have a right for government not to mess with you, for government not to do things with you. If you look at the Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights, free speech means the government can't silence you when you're speaking. Religious liberty means the government can't control who you worship, what your faith is. The Second Amendment means the government can't take away your guns. Those are rights. You know what the Declaration of Independence said? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So what is a right? Is access to health care. What is a right is choosing your own doctor. And if you believe health care is a right, why on earth did you help write Obamacare that caused six million people to have their health insurance canceled, that had them uh, lose their doctors, well, and for, have people like LaRonda who can't get health well, insurance, for, can't afford premiums, you're denying her what you say is her right. Well, okay. So that's a good answer. Uh, there's a good and a bad. The reason that's a good answer is because he defined the term. We've talked a lot about how to talk with progressives about things. And the number one advice is to ask them to define their term. What do you mean by that word? Now, Ted, he didn't say that. Right? The question was, is healthcare right? Um, Ted, I'm not going to tell what Ted should do, but if, if I were in that situation, I'd say, well, what do you mean by a right? Define a right, right? Put, put it on them. Now, Ted just went with it, and he defined right, and correctly so. Right? He says that, that rights that we have in America are endowed to us by our creator, and the government protects them. The government doesn't grant rights. They protect rights. You are endowed with the right to self-defense, to speak, to worship, and the government protects these rights. You are not endowed with health care. That doesn't make any sense. You're not born with health care. Someone has to provide it for you. So no, health care is not a right because you don't have a right to force someone else to give you health care. Now, that's the good with Cruz's response. But, but Ted Cruz, he's too good at this. He should have known you can't use the word access when you're debating health care with someone on the left who wants universal health care. Certainly not with Bernie Sanders. Because that's one of their buzzwords, and Ted had to know that Bernie was just going to take it and run with it. And here's what he did. We have 1352. You didn't answer the question, although I interpret your question to be that LaRonda does not have a right. No, that's not what I well, said. Well, what well, I well, said well, well. is no, I heard the Bill of Rights. I got the Bill of Rights. Right. She has access. But you don't have enough money. Your doctor Look, is LaRonda, right. you have access right now. Go out and get a really great health insurance program. Oh, you can't do it because you can't afford it. All right? That's what he's saying. Access to what? You want to buy one of Donald Trump's mansions? You have access to do that as well. Oh, you can't afford $5 million for a house? Sorry. Access doesn't mean a damn thing. What it means is whether people can afford it, can get the health care that they need. And they can't. Sec under yeah. See, see that? So Ted just walked right into that by giving Bernie the word access. He had to have known that that was coming next. But here's, here's the truth of the word access. He, he says, Bernie says right now, 
you don't have access to all the health care you may need. All right, you right now don't have access to all the health care you may need. What, what we've lost in our society, and I don't know if people think this is quaint or roll their eyes at it or whatever, but it is the answer. What he really means is you don't have access to all the health care you may need on your own. On your own, you don't have access to all the health care you may need. There is a gap between what you can access by yourself on your own and a gap and then what you could access with other people's help. And that gap is filled with private charity. This is where hospitals like St. Jude Children's Hospital come in. You never have to pay $2.2 million a day to run St. Jude. This is where health ministries come in. This is where back in the day we had mutual aid societies, benefit societies, the moose, the elks, the eagles. Fred Flintstone was the grand poobah of the loyal order of the water buffalo. And that's made up, but it's based off of real mutual aid societies that people joined. And there were dues, and you paid in to be in this group, and then if someone needed something, then the money was going to them, and then one day you would be helped, and that's how that worked. This is what Ben Franklin meant when he said only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. Only a virtuous people. Back in the day, virtuous people took care of their neighbors. Virtuous people were taken care of by churches or charities. Again, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. I would argue now that we are less virtuous when it comes to our communities and serving others and, and charities and stuff like that. We're less virtuous, less connected. Therefore, no freedom. And this is why you get people like Bernie Sanders and a majority of Americans listening to Bernie and being like, yeah, you know, you're right. We, we should force people to provide health care for me. We for, should force other people to pay for my health care. Yeah, we should force people. Yeah, that's not a free society. That's not. Only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. Today, we're so not virtuous. We expect, we feel we are, in Bernie's words, as he said, he underlined, we feel we are entitled to the government to pay for our health care. That is not a virtuous people. And that's a big problem. And no one's talking about that. So it's never going to get fixed, which means uh, this issue will probably never be fully resolved. one 800 excuse me, one 800 3393. Wow. Big Debbie Downer moment there at the end. Slater. Um, well, let me, let me, I'll be a little more blunt when I get back about something <laughs> that, that wasn't even blunt enough. Slater radio on Twitter. Mike Slater show the blaze radio network spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the blaze radio network. to uh, Lana, who is in uh, Colorado, my birthplace. How are you, Lana? I'm fine. Uh, I have a different approach to rights than a lot of other people have. And basically, it is the minute you take something from someone to give to someone else, it is no longer a right. It is a benefit, maybe a valuable benefit, maybe a very admirable benefit, but it is not a right in the sense they meant it in the Declaration of Independence. Rights are things we are born with by the nature of the fact that we are human. Government may protect them. In many cases, they have to be protected from government. But the minute, and and there are contractual rights, of course, when you and party A and party B agree, agree to something, then, then if, you know, you've got a right to demand your end of the agreement. 
But in the in the way they meant it in the declaration, the minute you take from one person to give to, to another, it is no longer a right. Well, that's a home run. And I love how you, you, you phrased this, the way that you, you seeded. It may be good. It may be valuable. It may be important. It may be wonderful. Yes. But that's still not a right. Right. Correct. And nobody has, I have heard, not heard anybody point that out. When you take from one person and give to another, it is no longer a right. Beautiful. Lana in Colorado, home run. Thanks for calling. Thanks for listening, Lana. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Well done. Here's the, um, here's the, the test, the right test. Uh, I like how Lana put it very good. As soon as you take from someone else, um, let me word it like this. You can choose one of the two. They're the same thing. It's the test. So, so you're like, oh, do I have a right to this? You're wondering, do I have a right to this? Okay. Does it put an obligation on another person? Does this thing put an obligation on another person? If it does, then it's not a right. Do I have a right to this medicine? It's important, as Lana said. It's important. It's essential. Life or death, perhaps. Do you have a right to it? Well, no, someone else had to make it. Someone else had to invent it. Someone else had to make it. Someone else had to produce it. Someone else had to manufacture it. Someone else had to ship it. Someone else had to sell it. No, it's putting an obligation on those people. So no, I don't have a right to it. Now, you can do that with everything, but but you're saying, well, hold on, Slater, I need it. As Lana said, it's essential. I need it, and I don't have it. Now, people want to build this bridge of, well, I have a right to it, therefore. No. No, it's not. The, that bridge, it needs to be built with charity. That's That's the bridge. That fills the gap. That covers the gap. But again, we're, we don't have that society anymore, which is the, uh, which is the problem. Let me, let me say it another way. Are you entitled to health care? No. Should we help others with their health care issues? Yes. Do you see the distinction? Those are two very different things. Are you entitled to health care from someone else? No. Should I help my neighbor with his health care bills? Yes. Should I help someone at my church with their health care issues? Yes. Now, see, back in the day, people used to be dependent on each other, these groups, churches, whatnot. But now we don't invest our lives in these groups and churches. So we need something else to fill that void, and that's the government. And that's why we've created this concept of I'm entitled to it. And you have the right to force someone to give it to you. That's not how it works in a free society. Well done, Lana. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze, Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.